Hello and welcome to season three of the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Today's guest is Dr. Mark Krieger, surgeon in chief at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, who joins me to speak about kids and COVID 19. Are children, as an age group, less at severe risk of COVID 19? And if some kids are at greater risk, which predispositions place them in that category? And as parents, should we be concerned, if not fearful, of unknown long-term side effects? And finally, have we reached a point in the pandemic where things like masks and distancing may be placing our kids at greater long-term risk than the disease itself? Dr. Krieger also describes his upbringing in Massapequa, Long Island, attending public schools there before studying philosophy and neuroscience at Harvard and then neurosurgery at Columbia Medical School. Mark also speaks about Children's Hospital's culture and service to Los Angeles, its contributions to transformational evolutions within pediatric brain surgery, and how becoming a parent has impacted Mark, both as a physician and a person. Dr. Mark Krieger on kids, COVID-19, and what we hope might be the final weeks and days of a global pandemic. This is The Supporting Cast. Dr. Mark Krieger, welcome to The Supporting Cast. Thanks, it's great to be here. It's great to be with you. And we are at a moment now where it feels like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it feels like we are nearing the end of this sort of Omicron surge. And some people are thinking maybe the end of this pandemic in general. But first, before getting to that, I really would love to get to you. How are you and your wife and your son doing at this unique time? Yeah, it's certainly been an interesting two years for us and for everybody else. So starting off with my son, Sam, during this time, he was in fifth grade and then sixth grade and then starting a new school at Harvard Westlake. So there's been a lot of transition in there. And my wife was actually able to film a movie and work on a TV show and another movie. So, you know, she's been super busy during that time also. And I've been busy in the hospital. It's been a seven day a week job for me over the last two years. I bet. Yeah. But that being said, it's, you know, it, there have been benefits to it too. We've had more time for family with less travel. And, and so there have been aspects of that too. And I should mention your wife is a, a partner of Steven Spielberg's and is a, a producing partner of his. Is that right? Absolutely. She's been with him for over 20 years now. And uh, Christy has uh, become a full-on producer. So she just got nominated for her third Academy Award for West Side Story. And wow. Had another movie she finished this summer and is about to start another movie. So I'm super proud of her. And you know, it's great that she also gets to do what she loves. And good luck at, in the Oscars in just a few weeks. Just a few weeks. So I'd love to talk about COVID-19 and kids. You know, my wife and I read a lot and, you know, we try to read relevant articles in the Atlantic or we follow the appropriate people on Twitter and we try to get our, our news and our information as best as we can in unbiased sources. And there is so much out there, but it still feels like friends of mine who have kids, parents at Harvard Westlake who have kids who are middle school or upper school kids and, and peers of mine who have kids who are under five and unvaccinated, they're still kind of a, a lot we don't know and want to know. Something I have understood, and you can correct me if I'm wrong again, is that typically COVID-19 is not as harmful for kids as it is for adults. 
and especially older adults or the elderly and especially unvaccinated folks who are our elders. But what are some of the examples of serious cases that you've seen? Because you, you've mentioned that you have seen some at Children's Hospital. And what are the type of preconditions in kids that may result in more serious cases of COVID-19? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, the, one of the hardest things about this has been the uncertainty of it all. You know, none of us have ever had to deal with anything like this over the course of our lives, fortunately, and hopefully never will have to deal with it again. I do share your optimism. I think that mm, Omicron is certainly seems to be going away. And I think that we have good reason for optimism that this might be the worst part of the uh, pandemic behind us. So I'm, I'm super happy about that. Children's hospitals have had really great leadership. So we've tested uh, every kid who comes into the hospital pretty much for the last two years. And we've made sure that all the kids are vaccinated who are eligible. We made sure our workforce has been eligible to keep them safe as well. And, you know, through that, we've learned a lot. For example, for the latest Omicron phase, 50% of the kids that we were testing tested positive, but most of them were asymptomatic. And so we hmm. had to figure out ways of dealing with them and helping them. But the good news was they weren't getting super sick from this. We did have a fair number of kids who were sick, especially in the other phases of this. And it basically affected two different groups of kids. One is the kids who had pre-existing conditions. So kids with obesity or diabetes. Uh, we also have a lot of sick kids who have undergone organ transplants or have cancer and have been on chemotherapy. So the disease was much more of a risk for them. And then there were sort of the random events that we poorly understand that caused this so-called Miss C syndrome, where kids had this autoimmune response to the virus, and those kids were pretty sick. Fortunately, we saw very few of the latter kids in this group. And even though we did have some kids who were very sick over time, the mortality rate was very, very low at our place. So we think we were able to really identify the disease early on and provide supportive care for those kids throughout. There's also this concern, though, in full disclosure, my kids both got COVID, as did my wife and I, and we had relatively mild cases, thankfully. But one thing I hear friends of mine who are fellow parents talk about is the fear of the long-term side effects, You know, the great unknown that many parents fear. Yes, the symptoms were mild now, but what about 20 years from now or 30 years from now? Is that a rational fear or an irrational one? And, and should parents think through the risks of something so unknown? First of all, I'm glad that your family had a very mild case of this, right? Yeah, thank you. Know, you. To, good health is always super important. We don't know enough about long COVID, and we don't know enough about long COVID in kids to really give an intelligent answer to it. Yeah. I do tend to think it's relatively rare. You know, I don't think that this is something like shingles that's going to come back in a reactivated form decades later or something like that. You know, so far, the information we have is cautiously optimistic that we don't think long COVID will be an issue in kids, but we really don't understand that fully in adults either. So it's sort of hard to say. It is one thing, you know, people at some point in Omicron said, well, let's just all get it and move on, you know, so that yeah. we have immunity. And I never would advocate for that just because we never know what happens. But the truth be told, we're exposed to tons of viruses every year, and most of those don't have a long-term effect on us. And it's just hard to know. But again, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that this will not be a long-term health problem when people have been infected. Another thing I want to ask you about is sort of the measures that we have all been taking and our kids have been taking to stay safe and to protect themselves and others from COVID. And I mean kind of masking and distancing. Those have been very important to preventing spread. But at what point do the dangers of the protection actually outweigh the dangers of the disease? This is something I hear a lot of people talk about, particularly in kids. Have you or your colleagues seen evidence of sort of socio-emotional harm to kids 
as a result of this masking and distancing? Is there brain science to support any of that as well? Yeah, you're asking all the tough questions. Um, <laughs> and unfortunately, I've got you. <laughs> yeah, and unfortunately, many of these don't have a really good answer. Um, yeah. The last two years have just been absolutely crazy, right? It's been crazy to think about the social isolation and the effects of all this as we move forward. And so we don't know what the long-term effects are. In terms of disease prevention things, right, the most important thing is not catching it. And so I think the masks have been hugely helpful. You know, it's hard to remember a time before vaccines. We only had the vaccines for a little over a year right, now. Right. And so I came to the hospital every day for the first year without a vaccine and just wearing a mask and with good hand hygiene and appropriate social distancing. And, you know, not good. I never caught it. So I think that the masks have been hugely effective in decreasing the spread of it, especially the effective use of masks. Does that cause social isolation and could it cause deprivation and things of that sort? Absolutely. We do studies on kids with neuropsychologic exams. Yeah. And the biggest way that you're able to recognize a face is by looking at the eyes and what we call the supraorbital ridge, sort of the eyebrow area. Hmm. And you can have really good facial identification from that. You know, and that's why when you try to anonymize pictures, if you just cover over the eyes, you usually can't tell who the person is. So that still is preserved through the masking phase. Interesting, yeah. But, you know, the rest of facial expression and whether that hides social cues and things of that sort, I mean, there's no doubt you'd rather not have people masked than have people masked. It's just a trade-off. You know, the isolation part and keeping kids home, I think we were all super scared and we didn't want to spread the disease and we didn't want to expose teachers and other kids. So I think that that was effective, but you'd rather have kids come back to school early and wear masks than not in terms of the effects of it. I don't know of any good studies that have shown it. They're all kind of small and they're all kind of affected by the time. So, you know, look, every generation is different, right? Like we have the millennials and Generation X and Generation Z, and they're all differentially affected by the effects of their time. But what those long-term effects are and what it means, you know, it's, it's a fine line between detrimental effects and idiosyncrasies, right? <laughs> so, right. Uh, you know, it's a little bit hard to know. I do strongly believe that the vaccines are safe. And yeah. uh, I think that that's been validated. So I, I don't focus on that. It, you know, it's sort of the harder to categorize things like long-term psychological effects. I, th I think, you know, we all feel that the sooner kids can get back in school, the better, even if it means wearing masks. And then hopefully the masks will come off soon too. I, I just, you know, I, I just have been really impressed with how Harvard Westlake's handled it by getting the kids back on campus. I think that's been super important and super good for all the kids. I think you're right. It's sometimes we tend to apply today's standards with vaccinations so readily available and go, hey, couldn't we have just all been in school together two years ago? And maybe there's an argument, you know, what we can go back and figure out maybe the cost benefit analysis we could have. But the truth is, as you mentioned, as I understand it, you know, different states have taken different measures around masking and social distancing. And not all of that evidence is clear what has been effective and what hasn't. The one thing that appears to be crystal clear is the effectiveness of the vaccine. Yeah, I think well, I think the vaccines have been super effective at preventing um, severe disease in people, right? So that's, that's right. I should really clarify important. hospitalization and death, it, and maybe not as effective at actually people catching the disease as we all thought, but certainly uniquely effective at preventing hospitalization and death. Is that fair? That's fair, but I think it does increase the viral load of people. And so, you know, mm -hmm. we get exposed to things all the time, but if the load is relatively light, then it's not going to cause disease. So I think by decreasing the amount of viral particles in an individual, which I think the vaccine does, mm. that's going to have a beneficial effect of having things on the road. But, you know, going back to the social thing, for example, yeah. my son, Sam, for example, 
they have social Zoom calls at night where they all talk to each other and on weekends and stuff, right? And yeah. it seems bizarre to me, right? Like I would, you know, <laughs> I mean, I've had a few cocktail hours on Zoom and they're always very sort of strained and awkward and everything, but it's usually <laughs> with a bunch of neurosurgeons. So they're probably always strained and socially awkward. <laughs> but, you know, it just seems that there's been a new adaptation to what the world means through all this. And is it better or worse? You know, it's hard to know. Back to this question about sort of vaccines, you know, my kids are both under five. So I have a three and a half year old and an eight month old. Vaccines have been readily available now to children kind of five and older. If the FDA approves, let's say the Pfizer vaccine to be used for children two to four or something like that over the next few months, should I have any hesitation in bringing my daughters over to CVS or the local clinic to getting a vaccine? What's your take? So I think that these age cutoffs have been relatively arbitrary. You know, mm. historically, it's very hard to get any medication or treatment approved for children under 12 or under 18, just because it hasn't been tested in those kids. So, I mean, that's the same for everything. Like almost any medicine we use, you know, is sort of an off-label use when we use it for children under 12. And so that makes things difficult, but it's just because it hasn't been validated in those kids. So yeah. I don't have any, I haven't seen any data or seen any evidence to say that vaccinating young children would bring on any more risk to them than it would bring on to an adult. These vaccines were all emergency approved, right? Like they hadn't undergone the years or even decades of testing that most vaccines would require. But the flip side is, you know, they've been given to hundreds of millions of people over the last two years and yeah. seem to be safe. You know, I don't, yeah. I'm not a subscriber to thinking that there's going to be some delayed downstream effect, but all the worst right. fears that people had about vaccines when they first came out, they just haven't been borne out. I mean, you know, you've had this experimental treatment kind of, but it was, it's been shown over the test of time to be safe. So, Right. No, it's true. On some level, even though it was emergency authorized, as you mentioned, it's kind of been tested on more people than anything in history, right? Because right. you have hundreds of millions of people across the world right. who've now had it. Right. But, you know, there's not going to be a study that where it's been tested on hundreds of millions of two-year-olds, just like there's not a study True. where it's been tested on a hundred left-handed people. You know, there's all different categories that right. you can't get specific on, but there's no reason to suspect that it would be any different than the other people. And it's true. I mean, literally just yesterday, I took my eight-month-old daughter to her pediatrician to get shots, right? <laughs> to get vaccinations. And so when I think about, oh gosh, just do I want my eight-month-year-old getting a shot? Well, we've already given her. I mean, she's been getting shots. You know, that's parents out there who remember having an infant, that's that's what you do fairly regularly is bringing your right. uh, your child in to get shots. Right. Right. And, and, you know, it's, it's. I mean, you forget about the efficacy of all these things, right? But I mean, you know, my generation, we all had chicken pox when we were younger and people don't get chicken pox now, right? And so hopefully the rate of sh all these other things will be less. And again, who knows what the long-term effects are? You'd way rather have a tested vaccine that activates your own immune system than take your chances with the disease process. Before going into you and, and your background and how you found yourself to this field, can you talk a little bit about your role at Children's Hospital? You were the surgeon in chief at Children's Hospital. Is that right? Yeah. So I came here relatively early. I started doing my residence here in 1992 when I was fresh out of medical school. I had moved to New York and came to Children's Hospital in Los Angeles in the USC program. So I was out here then. So I've been here a long time and I only left for two years to go back and work in New York around 2000 to 2002. So I started off as a staff neurosurgeon here, 
taking care of a lot of patients. I built a clinical expertise in pediatric brain tumors. And so that practice grew over time, along with it, research and academic stuff and all of that. And then I became the chief of the neurosurgery division uh, and I became the chief of the medical staff. And then eventually I became surgeon in chief. So now I'm the chair of the whole department of surgery. So I work with all 10 surgical divisions here to try to help them serve their patients. And I want to go into kind of your, your technical expertise, which is around pediatric neurosurgery. You know, many of us think we have high stakes uh, in our jobs, right? We have a, a deadline to hit. You have quarterly earnings that you're paying attention to, et cetera. But I think it's safe to say that very few people have higher stakes in their job than you, as your job is to regularly remove brain tumors from children. You're a parent yourself. How have you learned to manage your nerves and emotions, given the gravity of what you were tasked with on a daily basis? Like, how, how do you do that? Yeah, I, I probably wouldn't have been able to become a pediatric neurosurgeon if I was a parent beforehand. You know, you just have a whole mm, different perspective about what families go through and what it means and everything. But I think the big thing is I've studied a lot, right? I went to four years of college and four years yeah. of medical school, and then I did a seven-year residency and a one-year fellowship. So, you know, by the time you get there, you're sort of chomping at the bit and you feel really ready to do it. And then over the last 20 years, I've probably done about 3,000 operations, well, somewhere between three and 4,000 operations. And so, you know, I have the experience and the, and the goal of all this is that you want to be able to focus down on the task at hand. You want to be able to focus on what you're doing at that moment. Yeah. And at the beginning, I would start doing surgery and be like, oh my God, if I slip, this is going to happen and right. catastrophic. But now I just really focus on my specific movements and trying to be as efficient and as direct as I can in surgery. So it's a compartmentalization process when you're in surgery. But the flip side is that when you're not in surgery, you have to be able to be compassionate. You know, most of these right. families that I see are having the absolute worst day of their lives when they see me. You know, they're, they're told that they just had an MRI scan that they thought was going to be normal and it showed a brain tumor and they're rushed to see me. And, uh, you know, it's my job to sort of give them the bigger picture and help them see that there's a light at the end of the tunnel and to help them feel confident that they're going into it. You know, you commented on my tie and I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, part of it is people have to have confidence in me. You know, they, I always, people always say, how do you pick a doctor to do this? And I say, look, you just have to find somebody that you feel comfortable and confident with. You can't judge a scientific survey about who's doing the right thing or the wrong thing. It's all about confidence. Has becoming a parent changed that? Has it changed your kind of bedside manner? You know, I like to think I was always good at it, but I think now that, <laughs> yeah. you know, I think that it's probably some more degree of empathy, right? Like I think yeah. about how all of us, our lives are so tightly wired and tightly paced and to have something come in and all of a sudden blow everything out of the water, it, you know, I have a better understanding of it. So, you know, sometimes my residents or fellows or the students will say, you know, wow, that family was pretty rude to us. And, you know, I, I, take them down and say, look, there's no excuse for rudeness, but you have to think about what they're dealing with. They have other yeah. kids at home, they have jobs, and they've had to leave all of that. And they're stuck in a hospital where it's all scary and unknown. And on top of it, they don't want to see their child suffering. And so I think it's that perspective that I have now that I didn't have before. Yeah, wow. There, there is, I mean, humorously, I'll say that there's a little bit of a flip side to that in the sense that uh, my wife and son will both say that unless Sam has a major medical problem, I'm not going to give him enough empathy. So I have to work on that side. <laughs> Got it. Right, right. Really? A, a B on the test? You know, Think about the issues I have to deal with at work, right? <laughs> exactly. But you know, if, if he hurts his arm playing a sport or something, it, yeah. I'm always tempted to say, it's not a brain tumor, bud. <laughs> right. That, that exactly. does not win you points as a father. 
it's just like us saying, well, it's not brain surgery, right? And for you, it literally is brain surgery. Yeah, I, I've learned not to use that line ever in my life. <laughs> right, right, right. Before we get to you, I have one more question too about diversity, equity, and inclusion with regard to surgery, which I know is something very important to you and to CHLA. What are the challenges of attracting more young women and people of color into medicine, in particular surgery? I mean, obviously there's funding and debt are vital issues. We know that. But where do you think, you know, if, if people are listening and want to try to address this issue or figure out a place where they can, kind of where are the critical access points within yeah. education that can alter one's trajectory kind of toward this profession? It's a great question, and it's a difficult one, and it's something that I really try to take on in my role as surgeon in chief here. So I've appointed a vice chair of diversity, equity, and inclusion in our department, a very talented orthopedic surgeon. Uh, Dr. Bianca Edison. And so she's really helping me lead those efforts on that, or she's leading and I'm helping her. The problem is that the pipeline has been really bad. We've done a really bad mm. job of encouraging kids in high school and college to go into medicine or to go into surgical fields in particular. And I think part of that is history, right? Like, like we have these legacy problems where yeah. A lot of different groups have just not been represented in our field, but I really feel it's important to make people feel comfortable in the field. And I think it's important to also have leadership that people can see themselves in the field. You know, I think so some of that's sort of coming up with the whole Supreme Court nomination today, which I think is, you know, historic yeah. and is wonderful. But unless people look like you in high positions, it's hard for you to feel a part of it. And unless people talk like you and think like you, it's also hard. And so I'm trying to get more people who can relate, but we're trying to figure out, you know, if you look at people who come through here, what is their likelihood to want to become pediatric surgeons or pediatric neurosurgeons? And I want everybody to become that so we can pick the right people. I don't want people to feel that they have blocked access or that they wouldn't feel welcome in it. And it's a big challenge and we're doing a lot of things. We have some pipeline programs. We're working with different groups throughout the city for high school kids or middle school kids even, hmm. so that this is not something that feels foreign. If you don't know somebody who's a surgeon, it's really hard for you to think that you can become a surgeon. Yeah. And you're mentoring some high school students yourself. Is that right? Yeah. We have high school students, college students, medical students. And, you know, I try to do my best and meet with them. And uh, I try to do my best to bring them into surgery where it's appropriate so that they can actually see what it is. You know, I just don't want this to be a huge black box. You know, when I, when I think back over my upbringing, there was a surgeon in town, Dr. Stanley Gensler, and he just passed away a year ago, mm. uh, which brought up a lot of the memories. But, you know, the fact that I knew somebody who would come home in scrubs and be able to mm. talk about what happened made all this seem realistic to me. But if I didn't have him, I don't know what I would have thought about or looked at. And he probably looked like you as well. Is that right? Right. And so, right. Of course, that and that was, you know, the thing. And I, and I would just hope that everybody has somebody who they can relate to on a direct right. level who's in the field that they want to go into. Right. Well, that's a perfect segue uh, into your upbringing. So where did you grow up, Dr. Krieger? I grew up in Massapequa, Long Island. So uh, you mm. know, suburb of New York City. And I went to a public high school. 500 kids graduated with me. But the important thing was family, right? I had a very mm. close family in terms of cousins and parents and grandparents. And I think that that sort of gave me the confidence to go forward. And I had a lot of friends in different areas, which I think was really a good experience also. You know, people who were artistic into sports and all that. So I think it was a sort of a broad thing. I think that I always thought about becoming a doctor. I'm not really sure when the idea first came up, but apparently when I was in second grade, I wrote an essay about wanting to become a surgeon. I think probably this Dr. Gensler who I mentioned probably had some role in it. Um, hmm. But 
I'm not sure where it came from. And then when I went to college, I think I felt empowered to go to Harvard and I was able to get in there and I thought about going into different areas. And in fact, I was a philosophy major for my first couple of years there because I knew I was interested in the brain and how it works and that sort of thing. Hmm. And pretty early on, I realized that I'm not a philosopher. I'm just way too uh, concrete for that. And so I became pre-med and a neuroscience major and I worked in a lab and I had uh, some great lab mates there who made that seem interesting and exciting. And, you know, there was a whole cognition and behavioral health initiative at Harvard at the time. And so I think that got me excited into the field. And then when I was in medical school at Columbia, there was a really uh, great neurosurgery department there. And so I think that that made it seem fun and exciting. And so that's how I proceeded. And why pediatrics? That's a good question. My wife says that I'm a pediatric neurosurgeon because they won't let me operate on the big brains. Uh, and, <laughs> and then, of course, I point out to her that brains are pretty much the same size after about age two. Uh, Is that right? I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, your your body's made up of, if you think about it, there's a skull and a face, and your face grows significantly over time, but your head kind of stops growing after about age two. So it's That's one of those things about humans and mammals that were born with really big skulls and brains, which lets us function pretty well. So why pediatric neurosurgery? You know, neurosurgery came from the brain and, and the philosophical aspects of it. Pediatrics came up because I really like kids. Kids are always sort of hopeful and optimistic and want to get better. And so I think that those were things that drew me to it. I was fortunate that I was able to do my pediatric neurosurgery rotations at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. So I was at a place where people really were dedicated to taking care of kids. At other places that are adult hospitals, pediatrics brings in much less money than adult medicine. So a lot of people don't like dealing with kids or parents and stuff. So it's less of an experience. But here it was all in. Like if you come to this place, it's the most enthusiastic, exciting place you can imagine because everybody's here for one purpose, which is to help the kids. And they could all be earning more money across the street at the other hospitals or something like that. So they're here for a purpose. And so I really, really like that. And kids get better, right? They just want to get better. They don't want to be sick. There's no secondary gain. They're not on disability. They're not looking for any other reason to not get better. But the other side of it, and there's a little bit of the wonky side of it, but my interest was always brain tumors. And pediatric tumors are really, really interesting. They're really rare. Fortunately, there are only about 3,000 kids in the whole United States who have a brain tumor each year. But the good news is that most of them are curable. So when people think that my field must mm. be incredibly sad, you know, I tell them, look, 90 to 95% of my kids are cured by their disease before they leave. Wow. And so long-term bad outcomes with advanced surgery and with advanced chemotherapy and advanced imaging and molecular-based therapy has really gone a long way. So I could tell people, look, you're going to have a really rough year of this, but at the end of the year, your child's going to be totally fine. And that's the story that I could tell just around 95% of the time this year. And that isn't necessarily the case with adult brain tumors? No, unfortunately, adult brain cancer or glioblastoma multiform is still largely an incurable disease. And mm. so, you know, the flip side of what I was saying earlier is I want to be able to treat diseases, you know? Yeah, right. And, and a lot of that has to do with the genetic basis of these, you know, when adults get cancers, you know, they're because in most cases, both sets of chromosomes become messed up and the cells start dividing abnormally. Whereas in kids, there's sort of things that go wrong in a small number of cells and it sort of grows in one area. So surgery is very powerful in children that we can cure most of these diseases just with surgery. And with the other ones, we have really targeted therapies with decreased side effects that could really help cure most of them. Can you think of an example you said you started in, you said 1992? That's when I graduated medical school, yes. Graduated medical school. Can you think about something that you didn't think was possible <laughs> in the earlier mid-90s in this field that now we're in 2022? 
and that is fairly routine or that is helping to, to cure kids at a rate that you kind of wouldn't believe. Is, is there an example like that that you can think of? Yeah, I've got lots of examples like that about what <laughs> we do better than we did even when we started. You know, yeah. one thing, I mean, I'm going to say a few things, but, you know, one is advanced diagnoses. So we have all these different types of MRIs now that we can really tell what type of tumor it is before we even get in there. And we can really mm -hmm. have detailed anatomic maps before we we get in there. So we're really able to know when we can operate on more importantly, when we don't have to operate when there are other means of treating something. So that's really, really good. And more importantly, is I could target my surgery directly to the area that's most malignant now and find a way of getting into the brain and avoid the key functional areas that I want to avoid mm. getting into. So that imaging is super, super important. And that's super important. We are also able to do a technology now that we're able to set up just like the video games do when they morph real people into video digital creatures, we're able yeah. to figure out how to map directly through the brain. So I could touch a point on the person's brain and see it on the MRI scan to correspond to it so I can get really in there. So it's a sidelight of imaging, but it really helps us work well. Interesting. So it's kind of like if, if your wife were working on a Spielberg movie where <laughs> they're yeah. putting, you know, you've seen people in the, exactly. in the the yellow tennis balls or whatever, and they're wearing them. And suddenly the the human is acting like a grizzly bear or whatever it is. I'm 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 butchering this, I'm sure. Yeah. But that's sort of synonymous with what you're trying to do with the brain. It's the same technology. Obviously, it's much more money spent on movies and getting that technology to work <laughs> or video games. She's got a larger budget than you do. A much larger budget. <laughs> but it does make things much safer. More recently, we have been able to use a robot for surgery. And so the robot doesn't come in and do the same thing that the neurosurgeon would do, but the robot helps us localize a point in the brain very specifically. So now you could place a tiny little laser with some millimeter accuracy into a part of the brain and destroy you know, something that's either causing seizures or a brain tumor through a tiny little hole. And the patient's able to go home the same day. So that's been sort of a really wow. amazing and great technology. And the last thing I would just say is, you know, chemotherapy is not what it used to be, but we're hmm. able to target specific markers on a cell and wipe out the tumor cells without causing any of the damage to the rest of the body. You know, chemotherapy is so bad because traditional chemotherapy destroys all rapidly dividing cells, right? That's how you kill a tumor. And now we're able to just kill tumor cells and not the other things. So, you know, the goal wow. is when I give speeches about some of this, I say, look, my goal is for my research to mean that I will never operate again. And that's sort of what we're pushing mm. for to try to cut out surgery. So in your ideal world, the, the sort of the chemotherapy treatment would be so directed that you actually wouldn't have to get in there with a scalpel, or whatever the, the tool is to actually remove physically the tumor itself. Right, and if we did have to remove something, it could be done through a tiny little opening and have the robot direct the uh, ablation of the tumor. Wow. Those are our goals. And that's the type of research that's occurring at, at Children's Hospital in addition to the practice? Absolutely. We have some very good endowments. You know, One of the ways we're able to do this is we have a really big philanthropic endowment. So 70% of our patients are have government-funded insurance, which yeah. doesn't even really cover their care. But we've been able to raise huge amounts of money through philanthropy to be able to do this. We, we have support from the Court Foundation, the Feinberg Foundation, and also the NIH for research. And that's really uh, helped us do all this cutting edge work to try to get in there. And what do you love most about your work? You know, one of the things is that I get to do so much different things in my day job, right? Like yeah. I love seeing a family again, having the worst moment of their lives and giving them the confidence and the knowledge that they'll get through it. That's, you know, to me is super exciting. I see kids years down the road and, you know, it's not something that comes out overtly, but I know the tough times we went through and seeing their resilience and their ability to bounce back and to carry on with a normal life is amazing to me. You know, I get 
letters from kids when they're starting college or getting married mm. or any of those things and to know what we went through and to know that they understand that but that they've gone through it is great but i don't mean to sound harsh but i also love the surgery i love the fact that mm. i'm able to bring these sort of technical skills to get to those outcomes and to make a difference in the life of a child I and mean, that's what it's all about so I know we've been sort of in the surgery room kind of going there, but I want to, before we ask you some kind of get to know you questions, I want to go broader on Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, which is this great institution here in LA. You being a leader at that hospital, kind of what are the biggest strategic challenges that you have as a hospital, not just as a surgeon, not just the challenge of dealing with treating a specific child, but the hospital as a whole? I'll take the other side of it first. I mean, the biggest joy of it is we have about 10,000 people who work here, or maybe 12,000. And again, everybody buys into the mission, right? I mean, mm. they're here because they want to treat children. And yeah. any single one of them could have a better and more high paying job at another institution, but without that mission. And so the fact that we have a mission that everybody buys into is the biggest strength of this place, right? Hmm. So that's important. You know, the challenges are the finances. So yeah. children's health pays much less than adult health does. And, and why is that? Just curious. You know, to probably to some degree, it's largely political, right? I mean, children don't vote, but young parents mm. who typically have kids don't vote as much as older people do. So you don't have, you know, the other lobbies that are pushing for it. So there are probably about 150 to 250, depending on your count, pediatric neurosurgeons in the United States, but there are 5,000 other neurosurgeons in the United States. And so most of them do spine surgery. So they advocate for higher billing for and collecting for spine surgery mm. than something that's almost like an orphan disease in kids. So that, that's kind of true across the board. And then on top of it, kids have more government payers as their payment system than uh, adults do, right? So there are, you know, more kids on Medi-Cal than there are other things. You know, something like 75% of kids in our catchment area are on Medi-Cal. So that mm. means that their payment is dependent on the state. And Obamacare, you know, Medicare expansion was great because it really let more people be covered by insurance. But the thing that people don't realize, it was still a set defined pot of money that was paying for it. So if you take a set defined pot and spread it out over more people, that pays less money. So when you when you look at anytime we do a surgery, it's graded with a code or a DRG code or a CPT code. And those codes are set across the country, but the amount of dollars that are associated with those codes is state by state. And California is either 48th or 49th in the states in the country in terms of payments. So we received the wow. least payment for things here than any other state. So you combine the high rate of Medi-Cal patients with the low rate of reimbursement. And that means that we just couldn't take care for the average child in Los Angeles without additional means of support. And so uh, that's our biggest challenge is the finance. And, and you don't means test any patient, right? If if someone has a serious issue and they live in Los Angeles and they, they come to your emergency room or they need surgery from Dr. Krieger, you're going to treat that child. Yeah, I don't even look at it. It doesn't even affect what I do. They all get into CMA and we treat them all the same way, I hope. Wow. So we're dependent on philanthropy. So if you look at our budget, probably 20% of our budget is just from fundraising. And so, you know, in the news, you'll see these huge anonymous gifts of $25 million, but it's really the smaller gifts also that keep us going. I have an endowed chair from Billy and Audrey Wilder, you know, the famous Hollywood director, producer, right. writer, which is great. So it's I'm the Hollywood the, connection again. It's yeah. the Hollywood connection, <laughs> uh, but it's, I'm the Audrey and Billy Wilder chair of neurosurgery. And so that's a cool title, right? Like, cause I think he was overall a cool guy and did a lot of interesting things, but mm -hmm. that money means that I can do all these other activities and not have to worry about getting paid for them. 
And right. so philanthropy pays the using. So the finances are the, are the biggest challenge. The second biggest challenge is we treat about 50% of all the kids in LA who have high acuity problems. Hmm. And there are other great hospitals in the area like Cedars and Huntington and UCLA, but our biggest competition is other, you know, sort of small random hospitals that do neurosurgery procedures. And most of the data show if you have a brain tumor, you're better off coming to a big central referral place, but people still won't travel or go to other areas or healthcare plans prevent them from coming here. Hmm. And so that really limits our ability to uh, provide care out there. And then our last issue, quite frankly, is just one of capacity. We have a 360-bed hospital, which is one of the biggest children's hospitals in the country, but it's probably not big enough to support all the kids who are coming through. And so hmm. we need to build and grow and expand and find alternate ways of doing things to be able to accommodate everybody who needs our services. Any advice also on managing doctors? You know, doctors and surgeons, if you're going to stereotype them, they're incredibly smart, <laughs> they're incredibly able, they're incredibly confident. They know their area, in most cases, probably better than you do. Right. What's your leadership style and approach when, when leading medical personnel? Yeah, I, and that's a great question. You know, um, before I became chair of surgery, people said, you know, you're crazy to do this, right? You uh, <laughs> you have a really good space. You're doing a good job with neurosurgery. You have a busy practice. Why would you want to take this on? And, uh, you know, I've grown up with most of the uh, surgical division chiefs here. I've been with the same people for like 20 years. And there are some downsides that, you know, having one group in place. But I really, you know, realize for those who know me, this doesn't come easy for me to say this or realize this, but my job is to serve them. You know, my job mm -hmm. is to take the division of plastic surgery and help them do their work as good as possible and get them the right support and recognize that I can understand their mission, but I need to support them and what their goals are. And I think that that's been a thing. It's, you know, it's a trite expression these days. And I'm not sure I'm the exact right guy for that, but it's a servant leadership type of thing. You have right. to look at who you serve and be able to support them and advocate for them. Well, before we go, Dr. Krieger, I want to um, ask you a few questions actually about Los Angeles. Um, we are known for our film, for our food, and for our climate. So first, what is Dr. Mark Krieger's favorite movie? Oh, that's an easy one. It's West Side Story. <laughs> it's a shameless plug for uh, my the new one. I friends. assume the Steven Spielberg one. It was chance? a vast improvement over the initial excellent one. But no, it's it, it's it's really a remarkable thing, and I think how things are perceived in, in any day and time depends on what the climate is, right? But mm. I think what they were able to do is really make a uh, old movie culturally relevant and make sort of a timeless classic. So. I'm really proud of the work done on that one. I, I do think it's a great movie. And I guess I could pause you there. You know, we're all aware of Steven Spielberg's films and have grown up on them, and they're some of the most brilliant films of all time. Is there something that you feel like Christie has learned from working with Steven Spielberg that you think about in terms of leadership, in terms of creativity? Is there something, if someone would say, what's, what's the secret of Steven Spielberg's brilliance as a filmmaker? What, what would she say if she were sitting there? Yeah, you know, it's a very interesting thing for me because I obviously know him as a real person. And right. the thing that I find that's amazing, I mean, he obviously has an aptitude, right? Like he's really good at making films and telling stories, yeah. but he loves it. And, you know, I talk to Sam about this all the time also, right? Like you could be good at something, but not love it. Or you could love something and not be good at it. And those are not as great. But if you could find something that you really, really love and work hard at and can develop a skill in it, it's amazing. And Christy has a great working relationship with him. And he's a very optimistic, hopeful guy. 
but he loves filming things and he loves telling stories. And I think that that's a lesson for all of us, right? Like when I, you know, people talk about flow or service or things, but I feel the same way about surgery, right? Like I, I need to quiet down all the background noise in all our lives. And I love doing surgery for all the reasons we talked about. And I think you just need to find something that you could dedicate yourself to and focus on it. And that's sort of the key, not only to success, but to happiness. Secondly, what's your favorite meal in Los Angeles, whether it's something you and Christy make at home or whether it's a favorite restaurant? Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, during the pandemic, we lived on taco salad for whole periods of time. And so (laughs) I definitely have a favorite sense of that, right? Like it brings up all those memories of us, you know, sort of hunkered down together and uh, and doing that, maybe with a cocktail involved too. So uh, the taco salad plays a big role. Taco salad and a cocktail. Yeah, we'll leave out the cocktail part, but yeah. The <laughs> That's okay. That's mostly adults part. listening. That's okay. Third, what is your favorite place in Los Angeles? Could be a part of town, could be a street. I know it's going to sound cheesy, but if I say, you know, Children's Hospital, that'll be one, <laughs> but we'll leave that out. There's the helipad, though, that has great views off the roof. I'm going to say two other places, right? So I really love the Griffith Park Observatory. We used to live near there so that we could walk up to it. And so just sort of fond memories of hiking up with our dog and with Sam and going to the top of that and having these great views of LA. But it's so interesting because it's these great views of LA in this scientific setting, right? I mean, they they built a, an observatory, right. big telescopes on the top of a mountain. It's kind of cool. Last question. As I mentioned, I have two young kids. Last question I ask every guest is this. What is your best parenting advice? It was interesting. When I was younger and a philosophy major, you know, I used to think about the whole nature versus nurture debate, right? Like how Mm. much are kids born with something and how much comes out of life? I don't know that I have a better answer to it, but I think it is good centering advice. So to some degree, parents recognize themselves in their kids. To some degree, they project things of themselves into kids. And Mm. to some degree, they recognize the individuality of their kids. And I think that all of those things are important to keep in mind. You know, you have to sort of limit what you're projecting onto your kids, expectations, Mm. things that you either like or don't like about yourself, and try to figure out who your kids are, figure out what they need, and figure out how to develop them. I mean, I've become much more a nature sort of person, not nature like in getting out into nature, but nature (laughs) in the nature versus nurture debate. And I realize that kids are born a certain way, And it's your job to sort of nurture that and coincide with that. And I think the times that I've done a good job as a dad has been when I've focused on Sam and figured out where he's at. And I think the times that I've done a bad job are things when I've sort of come to it with a set expectation or projection. And I think those are bad. So I think it's important to recognize the individuality of each kid as they come out and as they develop over time. Don't diagnose the patient until you've investigated the problem. Listen much more than talk Listen. and project. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Dr. Krieger. Thanks for the advice about COVID. Thank you for talking about Children's Hospital, about your upbringing and your path to uh, pediatric neurosurgery. It was a real pleasure to talk to you today. Likewise, and thanks for all you do for Harvard Westlake. Thank you very much. This is The Supporting Cast. Supporting Cast.